I think you can do some more of that, okay? Just any time. Do I uh, hear anybody with a sentiment that we forget this interim garbage? Daniel chapter 11. Tonight begins a two-chapter consideration of an extended vision, the longest of the prophecies in the book of Daniel, which carries us down to the end of the book. Uh, Daniel dates it in the first year of Darius when he had come out of retirement at the spry old age of somewhere near 90 years old to help one more king solidify his kingdom. Now, prophecy is history that God gives before it happens. And since God stands above history, and though we cannot conceive it, we can affirm that time bears no relationship to the life of the Almighty. He stands totally above it. It is absolutely no problem for God to give us history before it happens. You know, it is amazing in studying the book of Daniel or other prophecy how far critics will go to deny the truth. The book of Daniel was known to the Jews hundreds of years before Jesus. It is known to have existed in the form that we have it prior to all of the events that it prophesies, and yet critics have insisted for 200 years because their humanistic pagan philosophy, though they name the name of Jesus, would come down around their heads. They would have to deny their ungodliness and their unbelief to admit that it's true and that it's what it claims to be. In Daniel 11 and 12 alone, there are 135 specific details of history, every one of which proved to be exactly accurate, though written 200 years before it happened. And in these two chapters, especially in chapter 11, we have a synopsis of over 200 years of history that proved to be totally accurate. Now, one thing we need to always remember about prophecy is prophecy is history from God's point of view. That's why there's a great difference between prophecy and secular history because God sees things in the light of their true importance and man only sees things from a shadow of reality. Prophecy is always history that majors on the way in which history touches the chosen vessel of God, the Hebrew people, that he appointed and protected and preserved to bring his son into the world to be the Savior. And so these chapters major on history as it touches God's people. Now the reason that we have history here of Persia and Greece and Egypt, great empires, was not because of their accomplishments, but rather because of their dealings with the Jews. Now in this chapter, there are really three uh, subjects dealt with. I titled the message on chapter 11, The Great Tribulation. That's really an oversight or an oversimplification because there are three things dealt with. In verses 1 to 20, there is a 200-year history approximately of the kingdoms of Persia, Greece, and Egypt. Then in verses 21 to 35, the history of a minor king of the Seleucid Empire known as Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus the Greatest, or as one historian named this imbecile, Antiochus Epimenes, Antiochus the Madman, who is called the Antichrist of the Old Testament, the man in history who most closely comes near to what the 
ultimate antichrist will be. And then toward the end of uh, the, this passage, verses like 33 to 35, there is a summary history in capsule form of the Jews from the time of Antiochus Epiphanes till the time of the true Antichrist during the Great Tribulation who shall be the final enemy of God and His people. So let's consider the text of Daniel 11, 1 to 45, and we'll try to hit it lightly because there's so much detailed history involved in it. First of all, in verses 1 through 20, here is a history of Persia, Greece, and Egypt during the 200 years beginning shortly after the prophecy was given to Daniel. Now he begins the chapter, the prophecies rather, in verse 2 by saying that Persia will have three more kings. And in fact, Persia did have three more kings. The one which followed Darius the Mede was his son named Cambyses. And then the second king was a very interesting fellow because Cambyses went off to the outer reaches of the empire to conquer new worlds. And while he was gone, a man who evidently bore great physical resemblance to the cousin of Cambyses declared himself to be ruler of the kingdom and protector of the throne. And for almost a year, this man called Pseudo Smyrtis, because a false Smyrtis who uh, resembled the cousin of Cambyses, but really wasn't kin to anybody. He just decided he wanted to be king and he pulled it off. He reigned for almost a year and at the end of that time, Cambyses had gotten wind of what was going on and found out that his cousin who had taken a vacation had somehow managed to take the throne. Cambyses was on his way back to deal with the imposter when he contracted some disease and died. And then the nephew of Cambyses called uh, Darius, which is a term like Caesar, his given name being Histospes. What names these guys had? Histospes Darius then defeated Pseudosmyrtis and became the third and last king of Persia that was mentioned here. Now, we're told in verse 3 that there will be a verses 2 and 3, a fourth whose empire was much wider than the others who gained great riches and spread his empire until he aroused the realm of Greece. Now, this king was the greatest of all the Persian kings. His name was Xerxes. We find him in the Bible as the husband of Esther called Ahasuerus by the, by the Jews. Now, he was the greatest of all of these kings. Indeed, he did spread his empire to great distances. But his fatal mistake was that he spent four years raising an army of 2,650,000 men, which was almost more than any other nation in the world had at that time. And then, with an army bigger than most of the nations, he decided he wanted to add Greece to his empire, just as verse says. And he crossed the border of Greece, which up until this time for several hundred years, as you know from world history, had been a series of independent feuding city-states. Greece united and had one of the most decisive battles for the history of the world, the Battle of Salamis in 480 B.C. The uncontrollable massive army of Xerxes was totally defeated. And he went home, a much weaker monarch 
than less than a year before when he had crossed the Grecian border. Then verse 4 affirms that a mighty king will arise. Uh, verses 3 and 4, a mighty king will arise. He will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. This was Alexander the Great, who in a very short time of years, within less than 10 years, beginning when he was 18 years old, under the united the auspices of a united Greece conquered the entire world and never one time lost any kind of a battle. But then we read, as soon <coughs> as he has arisen, his kingdom will be parceled out to the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority. For his authority will be uprooted and given to others. Now, it is a fact. The fate of Alexander the Great who arose just exactly as it is given here. As soon as Alexander had achieved world power, he contracted a social disease. He was a libertine, one of the great men of all time and one of the most debased men of all time. He died a very painful and ugly death. And his kingdom, through a period of struggles of 20 years, finally was divided into north, east, south, and west among four of his generals, as we noticed when we studied the vision of the ram and the goat previously in the book of Daniel. Now, little details that false historians wouldn't have bothered with as the critics accused the book of Daniel. It says his kingdom will be divided, but not to his own descendants. Alexander the Great had two sons. One preceded him in death. One was murdered by his enemies following his death. And neither of his sons ever held the power of the empire, just as it is stated here. Now, verses 5 through 20 cover a hundred years or so of history. And they cover a very sordid history. And it is so intricately detailed that I'm only going to hit a few high spots of it. For you can find in the history of Western civilization uh, any library, any textbook you may have, you can find most of this, though perhaps not in as great a detail as Daniel gives it to us. Now these verses cover the wars primarily between the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire, which ruled Egypt, the Seleucid area, and the Egyptians, which fought off and on with rare exception during all of this period of time. Verse 6, for instance, describes this situation. And after some years, they... Now, verse 5 is talked about the king of the south growing strong and obtaining dominion. And the dominion he gained was over the king of the north. These two kings, Seleucid and, and the Ptolemaic empires, went back and forth in warfare. Verse 6, And after some years they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. But she will not retain her position of power, nor will he regain with his, remain with his power. Now it sounds like double talk, but wait to hear the history. But she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. Now that verse is a perfect history of a situation of a king of the Seleucid Empire who took the name for himself Antiochus Theos, Antiochus the God. 
Antiochus was married to a woman named Laodicea. Then to solidify his own power and end the war, he divorced and set aside Laodicea and he married Bernice, the daughter of the king of the south, the daughter of Ptolemy Philadelphus, the king of Egypt. But Laodicea mustered her own friends, murdered Bernice, intimidated her husband into replacing her as queen, and then she promptly murdered him. Exactly as verse 6 says. Now moving on down, and I won't get very detailed with it, it says next that one of the descendants of her line will arise in her place. She replaced on the throne her son, Seleucus, Seleucus Callanicus. Gosh, I got it translate these into English. She put her son, Callanicus, on the throne in the place of his murdered father. Just exactly as verse 7 says. And then it goes on to say that descendants of theirs will again prevail against the king of the north. Now in verses 10 and following, we are told that the sons of Callanicus stirred up, were stirred up, and one of them will keep on coming and overflowing and pass through with a great army and the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and so on and so forth and so on. Now, these sons of Callanicus were Antiochus the Great, as he came to be known, and Seleucus Coranus. Now, what they did first was to defeat Egypt and then... Suddenly, it would seem after a very impressive career. Now, Antiochus the Great, I believe, was the grandfather of the madman Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a great king. Under him, the Seleucid Empire reached its greatest heights, but then he was defeated to rise no more, and his sons into several generations became little more than puppet kings of Rome or some other country. Now, in uh, verses 21 to 35 is described the career of the Antichrist of the Old Testament, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was one of the minor kings of the Seleucid Empire. He uh, was a, a weird fella. He took off against Egypt one time. He had had an inborn, for some reason, hatred of the Jews. He took off for Egypt where reports came back to the Seleucid kingdom in Palestine and Rome that he had been defeated and killed in battle. Well, the Jews declared what amounted to a national holiday and had a great feast to celebrate the death of Antiochus Epiphanes. Only problem was he wasn't dead. And when he heard about it, he really got upset. And he devoted the rest of his life to trying to perform genocide on the Jewish people. He was the first great persecutor of the Jews in the mold of Adolf Hitler. Well, the Jews were in very real danger of being eradicated from the earth, and they appealed to the newly risen to power Senate of Rome, which had begun to consolidate her power. And the Senate of Rome, I'm sure not without political motives, but in response to a nation, a little nation that was about to be totally wiped off the face of the earth, sent several of her legions under a general whose name I'm not even going to try to pronounce to fight Antiochus and to deliver the Jews. 
the Roman legions made short work of Antiochus Epiphanes' armies, and they offered him his life if he would accept the authority of Rome and would leave the Jews alone and let their nation be a protectorate within his empire. Well, he said to this general, let me have time to think about it, fully intending to fly to his cousin in Egypt and so forth. Well, that general of Rome, at least history says, took his sword and drew a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes and said, as soon as you decide, you can step out of the circle. Well, he had very little choice. He signed treaties. He did everything, acknowledging Rome's authority, swearing to protect the Jews. And then he waited until the legions of Rome got back to Italy and he started right in where he took off, had left off or whatever. Now, what follows is not covered in the book of Daniel, but in the apocryphal books, books generating from the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testaments that are not Scripture, but which are of historical value. There followed the war of revolution and national preservation under the family of Judas Maccabeus, one of the greatest generals and one of the greatest heroes any nation ever had. And after a great length of time spanning two generations, the Maccabees family succeeded in throwing off the yoke of the Seleucid Empire and for a time before she came under the absolute dominion of Rome, again became an independent nation. So, here briefly is the history, though we haven't read much of it here, but if you would like to know the career of Antiochus Epiphanes, just read these verses and it will accord exactly with history. Verses 33 through 35 basically are a summary in the barest skeletal form of the history of the Jewish people during the intervening 2,000 or so years from that time until the day in which we live and indeed until the Great Tribulation. And then verses 36 through 45 are the verses which deal with the period of the Great Tribulation and introduce to us the Antichrist who is the perfect image of the father of darkness. He will be the incarnation of Satan in the same way that Jesus Christ was the incarnation of God. God in the flesh, that's what the Lord Christ was. Satan in the flesh in all of his fullness is what the Antichrist will be. Antiochus Epiphanes very closely accords with that one and thus becomes a fitting lead-in for a capsule history of the Jews ending with the time of the Great Tribulation. Now beginning with verse 36, here is a history of the Antichrist. Then, following this short history, uh, of the Jews and their rising and falling in the times in between. This king will do as he pleases. He will magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished for that which is decreed will be done. Now I want to say just a word about that last phrase in verse 36, for that which is decreed will be done. I will not pretend to be able to explain it, 
nor will I pretend to be able to reconcile everything that has ever happened in the world, the evil as well as the good. But I will affirm that this verse of Scripture, along with literally hundreds of others, bear witness to the undeniable fact that everything that has and will happen in the history of the world has come to pass as a result of the decrees of Almighty God. Either a decree of His perfect will or a decree of His permissive will <clears throat> which allowed the development of evil and the wickedness of man that in ultimate time His name might be glorified the more. Verse 37, he will show no regard for the God of his fathers or the gods of his fathers. Either way, it can be translated. Or for the desire of women. Nor will he show regard for any other God, for he will magnify himself above them all. That is a perfect sentence history of the Antichrist as seen in the book of Revelation. He will not show any uh, regard to the God of his fathers or the desire of women. Now those two phrases tell us who this Antichrist will be. I don't believe he's Henry Kissinger. Kissinger's too old. He's over the hill. I don't know who it's going to be. He's alive today. I genuinely believe, but he has not yet come to public notice. Now, what does this tell us? The God of his fathers, the desire of women, two important phrases. The God of his fathers is a phrase used to talk about Jehovah God. The desire of women was a phrase common among the Jews from the earliest days when they understood from the scriptures that one of their number, a Jewish woman, would bear the Messiah within her body. It became the desire of every Jewish parent and every Jewish woman that either the woman herself or her daughter or the daughter of the parents would be the one to bear the Messiah. And that hope of every Jewish woman, every devout and godly woman to bear the Messiah, to be his mother, was called the desire of women. And so he will be a Jew. We know from the book of Revelation that he will arise from the revived Roman Empire. He will be a European Jew who will rise to power. He will not even show regard for any God for at the midpoint of the great tribulation, following an alliance with Israel, he will have his world headquarters in the Middle East. He will break his covenant with Israel. He will set up images of himself to be worshipped in the holy of holies of the restored temple. And he will pronounce himself to be the only true God. Here is his history, just as it is in the book of Revelation. And then these verses, go ahead and talk more about him. Now, I guess we would say in verses 36 to 39 that the Antichrist appears and it details his history as it begins. And then in verses 40 to 45 <clears throat> is described the latter part of the Great Tribulation when after apparent victory and consolidation of worldwide power, this Antichrist kingdom, though he seems to be totally in control, suddenly collapses around him and falls apart. And just as abruptly as he appeared on the scene and the details are given in Revelation, he totally disappears for God Almighty strikes him down and throws the beast and his friend the false prophet into the lake of fire 
where they become the first two to be damned in the place of torment for the wicked dead for eternity. Here is a vision which proves from what it affirms in the first 35 verses over 135 times exact details of history were given before they came to pass. Thus, I conclude that we may trust the latter portion to be an exact record of what will take place at the end of time. You know, I mentioned the decrees of God, the, the, the doctrine which is so basic to biblical Christianity of the sovereignty of God. Sometimes we proclaim the gospel as though God was defeated. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about or heard anybody uh, indicate that God created man with no intention or desire or knowledge that man would ever fall, but man messed God's plan up and man sinned. And can't you just see the eternal trinity walking the gates, the, the courts of glory wringing their hands saying, oh, what do we do next? I don't believe that, do you? I don't believe it for a minute. You need to shut yourself up with the word of God for a few weeks if you do. Everything comes to pass according to the decrees of Almighty God. God will be glorified by the fact that nothing Satan and fallen man could do could ever, ever frustrate his purposes. Satan corrupted creation. Satan thought all along that if he could just get rid of Jesus... He could dominate the created universe. But he couldn't even hold his new one world empire together for three years after he consolidated it. And it came crashing down around his ears. As we move toward chapter 12 now, the time of the Gentiles, a very prominent phrase in prophecy has come to an end as the end of the age approaches. When I was finishing up my notes, a song started running through my head, and I came in, wrote the title of it down. When I came in here, I had to look it up, and God willing, I'm going to do something that I've been wanting to do for 15 years. I'm going to sing while I preach. And then, as a hymn of victory and invitation, we're going to sing this. I will throw you a curve. It's 282. It's written by a man named Isaac Watts, great Christian of England. Jesus shall reign. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. There wasn't anything Satan could do to frustrate the great purposes of God. As a hymn of commitment for this time of invitation, when we in these last days solidify our commitment to the holy God who shall rule and shall reign. Let's stand together. Mark, you lead us. We'll sing all the verses. Jesus shall reign.